We really, really don't want to venture too far into the wide world of Zodiac. Everyone seems to have their favorite theory or suspect, and anything we say is sure to be met with anger. However, we're not sure why D'Angelo has been summarily dismissed as a Zodiac suspect. We're not plugged into the Zodiac community, but we've only heard two arguments against D'Angelo. The first is Sherry Jo Bates. The second is DNA. There is no question. D'Angelo is not available to kill Bates or send the Bates letters. Navy records and deck logs show that the USS Canberra left San Diego on October 11, 1966, with D'Angelo aboard. On the 30th, the ship was in the South China Sea between Subic Bay and Da Nang. D'Angelo is in the cruise yearbook and received specific notes on his record during that tour. Clearly, without the anonymous letters, nobody would ever have tried to argue that Bates was connected to Zodiac. On the surface, the Bates confession letter received about a month after the murder, is dissimilar from Zodiac in that it was not handwritten. Only carbon copies of the original typed letter were received, and the envelopes were not stamped. A bigger difference is the fact that the Zodiac gave specific, non-public details and Stein's shirt to prove that he was the real killer. To our knowledge and understanding of the Zodiac cases, None of his letters contained factually incorrect information. Somehow, law enforcement in the Bates case got the mistaken idea that the Bates confession letter contained information never released to the public. They also decided to ignore all of the facts in the letter that were simply wrong. We've tried to go through the letter's factual statements and check them against the known information and evidence. Sherry Joe was, quote, battered and dead. Those facts are both true and were widely discussed in the media. Sherry Joe was, quote, not the first. This can't be verified, but the Bates case has never been tied to any earlier cases by MO or DNA. This statement also differs greatly from Zodiac, who repeatedly included the dates and locations of his prior murders. Why mention the fact but provide no details or proof? Sherry Joe, quote, went to the slaughter like a lamb, and, quote, she did not put up a struggle. That statement is ridiculously untrue. But we have a good guess how someone who was not at the scene could think that. He read it in the newspaper. We found one early story that disagrees with the facts and all other news accounts of the case. On November 1st, 1966, the Pasadena Independent printed that police said, that, quote, there were no signs of a struggle. This is in stark contrast to the more specific and correct statement from the police. Quote, Captain Irwin L. Cross of the Riverside Police Department said there were signs of a struggle. The girl may have run up the driveway from the street to escape her assailant. There were scuffs in the gravel on the driveway. Additionally, the details revealed in the autopsy are brutal. Sherry Joe's hands were completely covered in bruises, scrapes, and knife cuts. She had the killer's skin and hair under her fingernails and grasped in her hand. She had abrasions, bruises, and cuts on her face and forearms. The killer's watch appeared to have been ripped off during the fight. The point is, there's no way that the real killer would expect to be taken seriously if he asserted that, quote, she did not put up a struggle. 
he left the scene covered in blood with visible human scratch marks. He would have been bruised and could have had bite marks or knife cuts. This detail alone should have convinced Riverside PD that the letter was a crank. Unfortunately, they got confused about the next detail in the letter. I first pulled the middle wire from the distributor. That single line in the letter appeared to give evidence that only the killer would know. Did it really? No. A quick look at the news articles between October 31st and November 2nd revealed the following statements. The wire from the coil to the distributor had been pulled to keep the car from starting. The engine had been tampered with to prevent it from starting. Two articles said, The coil wire had been yanked loose. And two stated, The ignition wiring had been pulled loose. Four stories included the phrase, the distributor and coil wire had been torn loose. And one said, the distributor and condenser had been torn out. The Riverside PD report stated that, quote, the coil wire had been pulled out of the distributor's socket. So those news accounts are spot on to the facts. Looking at later statements by Riverside PD Captain Cross and the FBI, they seemed completely unaware of the specificity contained in those early news stories. We're honestly confused here. There were almost too many references to the coil and or distributor to count, and we don't have access to the Riverside Press Enterprise, the newspaper we assume had the most comprehensive and specific coverage. The FBI said there was a press review at the end of November 1966, and it was determined that the wire detail was not disclosed to the press. What the what? That might be the worst-kept secret in the history of police investigations. The confession letter was never credited to Zodiac. The supposed handwriting matches were only to the later handwritten notes and the library desk poem. However, accidentally verifying the confession writer as the real killer has added to the confusion and muddled the investigation. It also had the strange effect of migrating the incorrect or questionable details in the letter into the accepted facts in Sherry Joe's murder. I waited for her in the library. Obviously, it was widely reported that Sherry Jo was in the library during its Sunday evening hours of 6 to 9 p.m. Riverside PD conducted a full reenactment with everyone who was at the library that night. They obtained fingerprints and hair samples from all of the males. It's possible that someone was missing, but it seems that it would have been widely reported and a composite issued. It would be a stupid and unnecessary risk to watch your victim in front of 65 witnesses and possibly be noticed and remembered. I followed her out after two minutes. Again, why would the killer risk being seen leaving right after Sherry Jo? This also raises other questions we can't answer. Sherry Jo's car was parked on the street nearby. Why didn't anyone else leaving the library see Sherry Jo trying to start her car? Why didn't she just walk back to the library and call her dad or a friend for help? Exactly what time did she disappear? The fact that we still see people debating this critical point 53 years later shows a real failure in the initial investigation. Who, what, where, when, why, and how are the foundational questions that must be answered. Surely, a deeper questioning of everyone who drove or walked past Sherry's car, the library, 
and the murder scene that night could have eliminated some time frames. People should not be wondering if she died at 6.30, 9, or 10.30 p.m. This also raises a larger problem with the accepted narrative of the murder. Somehow, Sherry Jo left the library at or before 9 p.m. and was quickly taken or lured from her car, but the reported screams were at 10.30. She was seen waiting outside the library prior to its 6 p.m. opening, and she checked out three books. However, several people she knew were in the library and didn't see her that night. Could she have been in the library for three hours and not made more of an impression on the witnesses? The facts of the case, the police investigation, and the confession letter all failed to offer any scenario that would explain a gap of at least 90 minutes between her return to the car and the homicide. We've read the Riverside PD and FBI narratives of the facts, and this discrepancy is just ignored. We've seen tons of random speculation, but we want facts. What scenarios have been conclusively eliminated? The battery must have been about dead by then. This phrase really bothers us. If you know enough to disconnect the wire from the coil to the distributor, you also know that it doesn't matter if the battery is dead or not. The car won't start because you've completely disabled the ignition system. The charge left on the battery is irrelevant. Also, the writer is telling a story about what he imagines, not what he saw. Why not just say, the battery was dead by then? I offered to help. This is possible. There were greasy finger and palm prints on the driver's side door of the car. However, nobody leaving the library saw any sign of Sherry Joe, the car engine compartment open, or a helper. This seems to follow a speculative narrative that appeared in a few of the early news stories. It did not seem to be an opinion shared by Riverside PD Captain Cross. I told her I would give her a lift home. Okay, we're crying BS right there. Sherry Jo did not leave her car to get a ride home. The car was unlocked with both windows rolled down. Her wallet and library books were on the front seat and the keys were in the ignition. We can't imagine that she even went looking for a payphone or voluntarily stepped away from her car at all. She bought the car with her own money from her bank job. She was on a set education path to qualify as a flight attendant. She was studying at the library on a Sunday night. This is not someone who was disorganized or carefree. Not only would she have worried about having her car and wallet stolen, but she could have had to pay to replace the library books too. Were her house keys on that same key ring? Does this make sense to anyone? away from the library walking, and she went very willingly. Again, Sherry Jo only walked away from her car if she was at knife point. However, it's possible that the letter writer got this from a press report. Again, in that same November 1st, 1966 story in the Pasadena Independent, it states, quote, Police said she probably walked voluntarily from her car to the scene of the slaying. We have no idea how many other news sources repeated that information, but it was contradicted by the Los Angeles Times and others who cited the police as saying, quote, The killer probably disabled the car 
and then waited for her to return from the college library Sunday night, and then sprang on her when she tried to start the car, attacked her when she returned and tried to start the engine. Officers said her killer disabled the car and then waited in ambush. Captain Irwin L. Cross of the Riverside Police Department said there were signs of a struggle. The girl may have run up the driveway from the street to escape her assailant. There were scuffs in the gravel on the driveway. There would be no good reason to go with a stranger. Presumably, Sherry Jo had just left the library, where there were people and phones. Even if the library had closed, the staff were still inside, she could have just knocked. What if she met someone she knew or trusted and accepted a ride? It still wouldn't explain leaving the keys and the car in the way they were found. What if someone offered jumper cables or mechanical help? There would be no reason for her to go to the killer's car. A jump needs a second car. She would just wait for him to drive his car over to hers. We think the police were right. She knew she was in trouble at the car, and she ran. Making her pay for the brush-offs that she had given me during the years prior. This reads like a detective magazine. The standard, she deserved it for rejecting me. It's exactly what a crank would write. However, since Riverside Police Department thought the ignition information proved it was the killer, they also started to believe this motive. It's impossible to guess how much damage this did to the investigation, but it had an impact. For at least 30 years, this became part of the factual narrative repeated by Riverside PD. It had to be someone she knew. She died hard. Factually true and really an understatement. It's not specific and carries no weight as far as credibility of the letter. I choked her. We've read some press references to Sherry Jo being choked, but there is no evidence of that in her autopsy. Her hyoid bone and neck cartilage were undamaged other than a knife cut, and there was no bruising or internal hemorrhaging consistent with neck compression. It's a minor point, but this statement is not supported by the medical evidence. She let out a scream once. Obviously, this isn't secret or inside information. There were at least a dozen news stories during the first week that stated that an anonymous caller said she had heard an awful or terrified scream, followed by a second muted scream. The caller placed the time at between 10.15 and 10.45. As far as we can tell, this call set the often repeated fact that she was killed at 10.30. Nothing about the body temperature, state of rigor, or digestion of her dinner eliminated the earlier time of 9 p.m., so it seems this anonymous call is the sole source. Looking at the documents that are publicly available, we can't tell if the caller identified herself to the police but her name was withheld from the press, or if the call was truly anonymous, as in the police don't know who made it. If the identity of the caller is not known, the information should be completely disregarded. People have many motives for inserting themselves into an investigation, including being well-meaning but wrong. We can't see anything that shows that Riverside PD knew the location of the caller on the 30th, that it would have been possible to hear the murder from there, or that they properly assessed the witness's reliability, including whether or not she had the correct date and time or any personal credibility issues. I kicked her in the head to shut her up. In general, this is nonsensical. Kicking someone won't make them stop screaming unless you do it a lot. 
to the point of unconsciousness. Also, there is likely to be more screaming. Kicking someone in anger makes sense, but not to quiet them. The autopsy showed no indication of a skull fracture or blunt force brain injury. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it does not match any scientific finding. I plunged the knife into her, and it broke. Riverside PD Captain Cross cited this statement as something that troubled him about the confession. No broken knife pieces were found, and the autopsy found only clean, consistent knife wounds. That was a careful examination that included depth, width, and character of the wounds, including the lack of hilt mark bruising. If the edges, tip, or length of the blade had changed, it should have been visible and noted by the pathologist. This statement also has a detective magazine quality to it, the type of overly sensationalistic and dramatic detail that makes a good cover headline. I then finished the job by cutting her throat. So her throat was cut seven times after the knife broke? We're not buying that at all. Without being too graphic, her neck was deeply cut from ear to ear. Logic and the medical findings do not support that statement. If the blade broke off the handle, it's totally impossible, and that's usually the weakest point on a knife. In any case, this detail is not supported by the evidence and does not lend any credence to the confession writer. We're also trying to picture the total sequence of events Mr. Confession describes. He has his hand over her mouth with a knife to her throat. Presumably they're both standing and he's behind her. He choked her. From behind? Still standing? Where is the knife he just had in his hand? She screamed. While being choked? How? Now Sherry Joe is on the ground screaming, but the killer is standing kicking her in the head? Next he stabs her. Are they both on the ground now? Did she stand up? When did Sherry Joe scratch him and pull out his hair? When did she get all of the defensive wounds on her hands and forearms? How was his watch pulled off? Finally, he slashes her throat seven times with a broken knife? None of that makes any logical sense, and it's not backed by the evidence. We would also have to believe that Sherry Joe voluntarily walked to that secluded spot and then he sprang on her. Yes, I did make that call to you also. This is another statement we've seen cited as evidence that proves that the real killer wrote the confession. Why? It would be normal and expected that someone who wrote a crackpot confession letter also called the police either before or after sending it. Additionally, there are press reports quoting Riverside PD saying that they had received numerous crank calls, so the detail could have been pulled from those stories. We don't understand how this seems like unique information that lends credibility to the confession. The confession letter has a lot of talk of Alice being stupid and walking in the dark alone. This is a standard women-have-to-pay TV and film motive. Not only is this a pop psychology cliché, it has nothing to do with Sherry Jo's murder. She was a responsible young woman who was studying at the library on her college campus. It was still evening, and she wasn't walking alone in a dark alley or putting herself at risk. The real purpose of the letter seems to be a garden-variety cry for attention and an attempt to feel powerful by causing upset and fear.
So, what did happen to Sherry Jo that night? She was killed by a white male with brown hair who did not attract attention or suspicion on the college campus on a Sunday evening. If the footprints and watch belonged to the killer, they were likely purchased at a PX, so the killer may have served in the military. That doesn't narrow it down much in Riverside in 1966. Since it was reported that Sherry Jo sat in her car waiting for the library to open, that's probably where the killer associated her with her car. Sunset was at 5 p.m., so he would have had cover of darkness at all of the relevant times. There's no evidence that Sherry Jo knew her killer or that she left her car willingly, so we're going to assume she was forced at knife point by a stranger. If he tried to force her into his car, she ran, and he caught her in the driveway where she was killed. Maybe she ran when she was first confronted at her car, although we can't understand why she wouldn't go right back to the library. In the end, despite a huge struggle, she was overpowered and killed. It's likely that this happened within minutes of leaving the library. So, why was she killed? Our best guess, since she was targeted, was a failed sexual assault. If the killer imagined in his head that Cherry Joe would be complacent and follow his commands, he may have been unprepared for the fight that ensued. Could she have been killed because it was someone she knew and could identify? It seems unlikely. In that case, it was always a murder plan, and that would be a stupid place to commit a murder. Why choose to attack her in the middle of a busy college campus? Just find a normal reason to get her alone somewhere more private. It could have been that he was a friend and expected to easily lure her into his car when she was faced with car trouble, but she didn't go along. The police seem to have done a good job of eliminating car theft, robbery, and personal grudges as motives, so it was either an attempted rape or the motive was personal satisfaction, and we'll never be able to guess. He could have wanted to see what it was like to stab or kill someone, or he wanted to cause generalized terror and panic on campus. We're going with our most logical idea, which is attempted rape and a brutal struggle over the knife. Why kill her? She could identify him or his car, he wanted time to escape the area, he was angry at her for fighting back, or some combination of all of these. The most recent Riverside PD detective assigned to the Bates case expressed a desire to use genetic genealogy to find the killer by matching the DNA profile extracted from the hair found in Sherry Joe's hand. We expect that's exactly how this case will be solved. The only reason we delved into the confession letter was to separate the actual, provable facts from the narrative outlined in the letter. Limiting the suspects to people who did not have an alibi at 10.30 or were in the library that night or had a crush on her from high school is not helpful. However, that letter really had nothing to do with the match to Zodiac, which came from three notes sent six months after the confession letter. They all said she or Bates had to die. There will be more. The notes were scrawled on notebook paper in a crude print. Each had a stamped envelope and Sherwood Morrill, handwriting expert at the state crime lab, claimed that they were unquestionably the work of Zodiac. He was certain. He reached the same conclusion about the writing on a library desk that contained a poem. Riverside PD Captain Cross did not seem impressed or agree with Mr. Morrill. The FBI did a comparison in 1974 
and did not find points for a match. Captain Cross also repeatedly pointed out that even if Zodiac had sent the notes seven months after the murder, that didn't make him the killer. Just another crank trying to take credit for a crime he didn't actually commit. So, if the handwriting isn't a confirmed match, and the notes don't give any details known only by the killer, why has Bates remained connected to Zodiac? There are three main reasons. Paul Avery sold his readers on the idea that writing letters to the police was unique to Zodiac. The most often cited Zodiac suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, lived near the Bates murder scene in 1966, and Zodiac kind of took credit for the murder. We don't think Allen was Zodiac, and we know he didn't kill Sherry Joe. His DNA was compared to the profile recovered from the hairs in her hand, and there was no match. Killers and cranks write to the police and newspapers all of the time. We just don't see them published. Generally, the press does not expose details of an open investigation if they're told it could compromise the case. Zodiac was an odd and rare exception. If law enforcement thinks the letter is from the killer, it's a lead, and they don't want to ruin it with public knowledge. If it's a crank, they don't want to feed him and encourage the behavior by publicizing it. Also, Printing threatening and taunting letters causes public panic and serves no investigatory purpose. You risk creating copycat crimes and letters, which only confuses the investigation further. Every major case file has a box of these letters. We just don't see them splashed across the front page. This is not an M.O. point that was unique to Zodiac. Although Zodiac later referred to police, quote, stumbling across my Riverside activity, he gave no specific information. At that point, he was sending letters with ridiculous and never verified victim counts. In that letter, he claimed to have killed 17. If he had killed Bates, it would have been stupid to brag about it, since it could be a valuable lead to his past. Since he didn't include Bates on the Lake Berryessa car door or ever provide any details of the crime, we're going to assume he didn't kill her. The evidence of a connection isn't there right now. There is also a very obvious reason for Zodiac to claim Bates, to confuse the investigation. Well, that clearly worked. How many endless hours have been spent chasing down Zodiac suspects with ties to Riverside in 1966? How many words have been written about Bates in books and news stories about the Zodiac? How many film and documentary hours were wasted on this unlikely lead? We can't tell you how many different places we've seen Bates referred to as a confirmed Zodiac case. Stumbling across my Riverside activity. With five simple words, Zodiac created 50 years of confusion. How many good suspects have been ignored or eliminated from consideration simply because they weren't available to kill Sherry Jo? Digging through the rumors about Zodiac DNA was a bit of a slog, and we're not sure we know where it stands today. Back in 2001, they attempted to extract DNA from the back of stamps and envelope seals on known Zodiac writings. They were not able to extract a profile. However, they were able to develop a very partial male profile, 
four alleles from the front of one of the stamps. That's pretty much like swabbing a piece of garbage from the can in the police department break room. An untold number of males had touched that stamp over the years. It's impossible to say those alleles all belong to the same single male, rather than a mixture of partials from two or more, and there's nothing that makes it relevant or material to the killer, especially since we can presume that Zodiac either wore gloves or carefully wiped down the cards and envelopes to prevent fingerprints. This all seemed to be confirmed in a couple of news articles from 2018. These are posted on Facebook and on our website blog. The Viejo Police Department said that, quote, several months before May 2018, they'd submitted two untested Zodiac envelopes to a private lab for testing. We're going to guess that was Parabon, but it doesn't say. At that time, they anticipated results, quote, soon. Well, it's January 2020, and we're guessing that they've finished that testing by now. We can't imagine that the DNA lab or any genetic genealogist put Zodiac on the back burner or ignored it for two years. It's probably the highest profile unsolved serial case of the 20th century. Were they able to develop a usable, relevant male profile from the envelopes? If so, why haven't they made an arrest? Backward investigating a DNA-identified suspect should take days or weeks, maybe a month. Shouldn't we have heard something by now? In any case, there is no proof that Zodiac killed Bates, only mostly disproven speculation. Nobody has been publicly eliminated as a suspect based on the 2018 envelope testing. Is there a secret we're not in on? We understand that lots of people believe they know that D'Angelo can't be the Zodiac, but does anyone have proof or even compelling evidence? We're not talking about escalation theory, profiling, favorite suspects, or supposed MO differences. Can D'Angelo be eliminated by physical evidence or known alibi? If so, we haven't seen or heard about it. Again, we're not saying he is Zodiac. We're just puzzled at the general certainty that he isn't. How has D'Angelo been so quickly and completely dismissed as a suspect? Keep an eye on our Facebook page and website blog. We're going to be posting links to some new maps. They will be basic versions of our VR, EAR, ONS map, combined with the known Zodiac homicides and some unsolved cases in the relevant areas and timeframes. We've wondered what would happen if we overlaid that map with the concept of radians as laid out by Zodiac. As much as we understand it, we've been using his directions. Zodiac claimed that by breaking his cipher and then using inches and radians, police could discover the location of his bus bomb. We didn't find the bomb, but the results are pretty crazy. You might need to put on your tinfoil hats before venturing into this rabbit hole. Mm-hmm.